Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons High Yield Programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. This week's edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast discusses the intersection of no-till and technology in Saskatchewan, Canada. The need for autonomy arose in Saskatchewan because of the shortage of available labor, says Norbert Bougeau. Farms, like his 3,000-acre mixed crop and testing operation, were getting larger, but labor still remained scarce. He formed Dot Technologies Corporation, which features remote-controlled power units with variable attachments for seeding, spraying, rolling, and moving grain carts. His Dot units were publicly launched in 2017 at Saskatoon's Ag in Motion, and the company has since been sold to equipment manufacturers Raven and then Case IH. Norbert and Frank discussed the reasons behind the widespread adoption of no-till in Canada, the reasoning behind Dot Technologies, and the future of farming in Saskatchewan. So I'd like to start out by talking a little bit about We'll talk about you, but I'd like to start out talking a little bit about no-till in Canada versus the U.S. We got about 30% of our land in the U.S. is no-till, but in, in Western Canada, it's way higher than that, right? Yeah, it sure is. Um, I I would guess it's over 90%. Why are you guys so far ahead of us? Well, maybe it's tougher farming here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It we it's dry it's a drier region typically although this year we're struggling with excess moisture but uh, saving the moisture has been important and they've they've moved to very large farms which is also maybe an easier way of farming once you get into the the habit of no-till. Now on these larger farms, will most of that land be owned or rented? Uh, I think most of it's actually owned or within within a family group anyway. I think yeah. that's one. I think that's one of the problems here in the U.S. that we rent so much land that these large operators are fearful of a disaster one year and they're going to lose the land. But uh, you've got a shorter growing season too. One is wheat still the major crop in your area? Well, it's it's more moved to three ways or four ways i guess canola is extremely important in the area and it's it's probably just biting at at the heels of wheat in terms of acres and uh, peas and lentils and beans are becoming more more common 
And then there's always a bit of oats, barley, and flax. So peas, or wheat and canola are definitely the, the two. And and canola does really well in no-till because you need that moisture in the top inch to uh, germinate because you can't see deep. And so the no-till practice keeps the keeps that moisture right at the top in arid land conditions. We should let our listeners know where you're located and what part of Saskatchewan. Uh, our farms close to between Kenosi Lake and Whitewood, so it's on the east side of the province. We have our business, of course, in Emerald Park, which is sure. part of Regina, Saskatchewan. Yeah. So the farm is how many miles north of the border? Uh, it would be uh, 80 miles okay. north. Yeah, and all your all your crops that you mentioned, these are spring planted, spring seeded. Yeah, there's a bit of winter wheat seeded, uh, but uh, less than less than five percent of the wheat would be winter. Uh, everything else is spring. So, yeah. if you were if you're planting uh, wheat in the spring, when's the ideal planting date in your area? Well, a couple of weeks earlier than we got into it this year. <laughs> <laughs> Early May is ideal, and a lot of seeding because of the wetness got done in in later May and sure. into the first week of June. You're short of moisture, so uh, normal year. This year, there's too much moisture, but uh, right. you're you're right. Typically, we're trying to make use of the moisture from the snowpack uh, that always leaves some moisture in the top top area enough to germinate the crop. Yeah. I always remember our very first national no-tillage conference in 1993. Dwayne Beck was a speaker, and he got up and he said, you guys in Ohio no-till to get rid of the water, and in South Dakota we no-till to keep every drop that we can. <laughs> so it depends yeah, on the year. Yeah. There's there's some aspects of of no-till that actually improve uh, wet conditions as well. Like uh, I I think if if there's less tillage, your soil is more adapt to passing the moisture through the old root systems and and the higher organic matter that builds up over the years. Tell me about the home farm. Well, it's been in the family for many years. Um, when I took over from my father, I guess it was about about 800 acres, and uh, now it's about 3,000. So it's a fairly still a fairly small farm, but we use it a lot for testing equipment and uh, doing doing things a bit on the odd side, I guess that uh, <laughs> that <laughs> we want to test the limits of things somewhat, sure. I guess. So what would be the normal size farm in your area? Yeah, there's there's quite a range. Of course, there's still some around the 1,000 acres, but there's most of the ones that are taking over are in the 10,000 to, to 30,000 acres, I guess. So what width uh, equipment would they like to be running on 10,000 acres? Well, our biggest sellers are 70 and 80 and 90 foot units. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we build up to a hundred, hundred feet. So you went off to college and was, was an engineer and didn't necessarily plan on coming back to the farm? Yeah, I've always had the farm at heart and I took agricultural engineering. So it somewhat relates to, to sure. agriculture or at least, at least the equipment side of it. And, uh, 
when I returned to the farm in 85, my father was trying a little bit of no-till, trying to scratch the dirt less, and the equipment wasn't really good for that uh, in terms of precision seeding. And so within the years 85 to 91, I was, and that's the years that canola became important and sure. seed depth seed depth was also very important so scratching my head and making notes on little pieces of paper for a few years until I started sliding off the dresser I I came up with uh, the first individual hydraulically activated opener in the world I guess so that gave us the the depth precision of individual openers and uh, started seed hawk then in 1992 so around the time that you were referring to there. Yeah, right. And then uh, you, you moved on from Seedhawk to Seedmaster a few years later. Yeah, about 10 years later, and so 2002. So it's been 30 years since I started Seedhawk and about 20 years since I started Seedmaster. Yeah, they both use the same opener patent that I filed for in 1991, I guess, or 91, so- so what gave you the idea for this opener that was different than anything else? I, I don't know. I guess I like to keep things simple. So I was looking at how things were getting worse and worse back then with the bigger and bigger equipment. And instead of building a one-foot cedar, why can't we build a 100-foot cedars that's individual one-foot sections? So that's basically... What inspired me is can can we can we go five or six miles an hour and maintain a, a three quarter inch seed depth uh, uh, precisely and uh, that's what I pressured myself towards figuring out I guess. What were the uh, row widths you were working with or were, are working with today? Well, at first we were working with thirty thirty to forty feet I guess. Mm-hmm. And now, now we rarely build anything under sixty feet. So now it's sixty to one hundred. Yeah. So what would the row width oh, be? We started with uh, nine, ten and a half, and twelve, and now we're doing the vast majority is twelve, but we're doing fourteen and fifteen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've got a new product called a single rank that. Uh, it's doing a tremendous job of everything seeding related, and it's it's only available at 15 inch centers, but it it has so many pluses with it that it overcomes the plant population. Well, we have still the same plant population, but the ground coverage, and it makes a very good no-till machine. So, guys that are using your machine to seed wheat, it would be in 12-inch rows? Well, that that specific machine, yeah. Well, 12 or 15, yeah, typically. So, uh, so our guys down here would be more inclined to do 7.5 or 8. Yeah, which in, in a heavy straw with a, a whole opener, uh, 7 or 8 is really problematic uh, mm-hmm. to try and achieve any kind of uniformity. I think that's one of the big things that amazing is amazes me that changes along the 49th parallel is is on on our side pretty well 90 95% of the 
of these air seeders are are hole openers or knife openers, more mm-hmm. specific. And you cross the border sixty miles south, <laughs> and they're more more often than not they're disc openers. And uh, and of course we understand each other's practices, but we still have one way of doing it here. That no nobody wants to go to a disc and. I haven't studied a disc enough to to really uh, comment on overall why those decisions are made. But uh, well, sometimes you get sim- some. Sometimes you get some that looks successful. You're afraid to try anything else. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always a few that try, but there, of course, on a larger scale, there's there's more wearing parts and things like that on a disc opener and uh, the little bit of disturbance that we do with the knife openers is beneficial on a uh, in a cooler zone where uh, you, you blacken up the soil a little bit directly over the, the seed roll with a knife opener. We'll come back to Norbert Bougeau and Frank Lesseter in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximizing crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Anderson's High Yield programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. With high fertilizer prices, many no-tillers have been wondering whether it's uh, profitable to keep putting on the same amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash as they've done in previous years. Well, a two-year study at uh, the Kama Research Farm in Alpha, Illinois, showed that spending $150 per acre on Phosphorus and potassium turned out $331 worth of grain, and that's a profit of $181 or 121% return on investment. So this was with surface supplied dry potassium and phosphorus, and uh, it shows that that continues to pay off. With corn, the application gained 47 bushel per acre, and with soybeans, it gained 11 bushel per acre. And then with that profit, it's probably even higher these days with higher commodity prices for both corn and soybeans. And now back to Norbert and Frank. Well, we got people down here that if they're in a corn, soybean, and maybe wheat rotation, they're going to have a planter. And then maybe they're going to have a no-till drill or they're going to have a no-till air seeder. But with the crops you mentioned, you would probably only need one unit, right? Typically, that's right. We can seed all of those crops well with uh, with the seed master yeah you, you do soybeans yeah. we do yeah yeah we can meter them well and uh, and place them well so and on 15 inch centers they they do well of course too right are you putting nutrients down with these rigs yeah we typically do all the nutrients most of the farmers do all the nutrients in in the seeding pass so mm-hmm. the uh the fertilizer is an inch and a half inside, and it's it's about an inch lower, and it's a very distinct location. Like there's the way the two knives operate, there's very little, there's really no chance of getting 
the seed and the fertilizer mixed together. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. There been any problems with no-till in Western Canada, real serious ones? You know, it's been pretty progressive over those 30 years. Um, it's um, We grow much bigger crops, more dependable. We seed earlier. We harvest earlier, more dependable times of the year. Of course, the, the varieties and the, the plant producers have done a lot to help us as well. Sure. Is barley still a big crop in Western Canada? Well, yeah, it's a pretty big crop. For some reason, we've never grown it on our farm, but I have neighbors that do. And, uh, and yeah, Saskatchewan is fairly well known for its barley. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I was looking at some of the stories we've done on you over the years, and you've uh, sold a number of your machines into Australia, which is really dry conditions, right? Yeah, a lot of their conditions are as severe or worse than, than ours. Um, they, Yeah, there's definitely areas that grow reasonable crops that, that have uh, very unpredictable moisture, I guess you'd say, too. And um, they're having a good year this year. But, uh, yeah, we continue to sell a fair number of units into Australia. should I ask you earlier, what's your normal, what's your normal moisture? I think it's about 11 inches per oh, year wow. in wow. Saskatchewan. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. See, we get, we're in Wisconsin. We get about 30 <laughs> inches. Yeah. Will, uh, will most of your moisture come during the winter or will you get some in the summer? No, we'll get some in the summer. Um, we can we can grow a if we, if we have a couple inches of moisture in the spring and another couple during the growing season, we can grow a fifty sixty bushel crop of wheat. And, mm -hmm. uh, so just making good use of that moisture. So uh, ideally, what would be the stubble height you would cut wheat at so you could trap moisture in the winter? <laughs> Yeah, we it, there's varying practices. Um, we we've grown a lot heavier crops over this that period of years, where an average crop might have been 30 bushels when we started, and now it's more closer to 60 on the average for actually for canola and and wheat. And so the stubble becomes more important to handle it well, to be able to seed well into it the next year. So we used to cut, and we still do cut pretty much 12 inches high, but there's a lot of people cutting shorter um, if they're on narrow, narrower row spacing, and I'm talking like 12 inches than, than, than in heavy. And, and there's more and more heavy harrowing as well to, uh, to really manage the residue in right. a way that, that lets you get into it well. Yeah. So cover crops probably are not very popular up there, but you're going to have some stubble that will protect the soil during the winter, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the soils are quite well protected with the stubble, less so with, with, uh, with uh, peas, but uh, yeah. When would you plant peas and harvest them? They're planted usually first, so, uh, uh, you know, about a month ago, they're harvested first as well, so uh, late mid, middle August. With a uh, higher price for wheat, is this becoming more competitive with peas and canola? Or well, they've they've all jumped a lot, okay. and uh, I haven't followed it that closely just lately. But 
Yeah, canola's done really well, and peas are nice to have in a rotation because of the the nitrogen fixing, and there's a few things that they tend to do to the soil to to improve it over the long term. Right. Well, peas give you some nitrogen fixation. It's kind of what you would get from cover, what we're getting down here from cover crops over the winter. Yeah, that's right. So tell me, tell me about some of your new things. Tell me about how you got involved with the dot invention and what's happened in that area. Well, I guess what spurred it on probably was the the recognition that we're running out of good labor on the farm. Sure. And um, and I, I think that that more and more it will become autonomous. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, and I, just to. To be frank, I'm I'm mostly retired now, but I still keep track of the the business and and the farm somewhat too. But uh, but as I in in my retirement years, I started thinking, what how can I get Seedmaster ready for the autonomous world? And mm-hmm. my first winter or two of thinking about it, I was working on basically just that an autonomous seeder. Uh, and then when I realized that I could change change the cedar for a, a grain cart or a sprayer or things like that without sure. too much trouble, and I got a lot more <laughs> interested in it and, right. and filed for patents. Then, so yeah. you got the, you got this started, and then you kind of sold it off to Raven, who has kind of now sold it off to Case IH, right? Yeah, yeah, it gets further and further away. Yeah. <laughs> We were actually not looking to sell it off. We were uh, we were looking for a little bit of investment money, and when they when they heard about it, they didn't want to leave us alone. I guess they kept uh, right. So it worked so, out good. Yeah. yeah. Have you got some of these units running in Saskatchewan now? Raven has, I'm sure. Um, we're not fully aware of what they right. what they're all doing, but uh, yes, they'd be. There'd be a number of them doing spraying, spraying or fertilizer spreading or grain cart. And I know there was some seeding going on this spring as well. So uh, with this unit, how how wide a seeder could you have? Well, it it was it is a thirty a thirty foot single rank, so a seed master product that that's the seeder portion of it. Yeah. Okay. What else are you working on these days? Well, I don't know if you heard the news in the last few week or so that John Deere decided to sell our product for the dry land areas of Oh yeah, I did. Yeah. North America. That's more our conventional cedar, although we've we've improved it with some of the John Deere portions that go onto the toolbar. Other than that, I've always got other projects, but I don't talk about them until <laughs> right. until I know they're going to work. <laughs> you're going to plant. You're going to paint these green for deer. Oh yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're really uh, they're really important on the on the color, and uh, it looks right. looks really good in green. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. So, yeah. what's going to happen uh, with farming in Saskatchewan five, ten years from now? Farms going to get bigger? Or? Stay the same, or what? Are we going to still have labor problems? Yeah, I think we'll have labor problems. Machines keep getting bigger, and I think the farm. I've never seen a situation where farms got smaller. You know, right, right. Last hundred years, so I I don't see any reason why that would all of a sudden start 
Yeah. We we keep making equipment so that it's more and more dependable. It, it used to be that we have to change cultivator shovels in a thousand acres on a on a no-till drill. Right. And now if if it doesn't go 10,000 acres, we're pretty disappointed with it. So <laughs> so we we keep things making things so that they're more and more dependable and go faster and do more acres. So so a farmer in your area was say 20,000 acres, would he buy one dot unit or would he run two or three or what? Oh, dot units? Well, that has never been tested to that level yet. Uh, no, there would be, I was envisioning uh, about uh, uh, about three 3,000 acres per unit. Okay, and you can run these 24 hours a day if you need to? You can. You still need the manpower to support them, like right. hauling product to them, and yeah, right. yeah, you right. could. But you know, if you got fifteen thousand acres, you want to get that crop in pretty quickly within maybe ten days or fourteen days. So that's right. Yeah, exactly. There's typically that's what I always say. There's this one one ideal week a year to see, <laughs> and then <laughs> both ends of that. But this year. We we got finished seeding the canola uh, about a week ago now, so it was really late. But there was like there's been like eight inches of rain in the last in the month of seeding in our area, so it was really sticky to get into. Hey, this has been great. <laughs> well, it's been good talking to you again, Frank. And okay, we will run into each other sometime. Right. All right. Take care and thank you very much. Thank you. That was Norbert Bougeau and Frank Lessener talking about no-till and technology in Canada. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lessener one more time. A reader asked me recently, whatever happened to the zone tillage uh, concept that Ray Rawson from Farwell, Michigan had come up with? In fact, he, he was known as the father of zone tillage. And over the years, he had developed several zone tillage tools to go along with a cropping system that he felt blended the best of both no-till and conventional tillage. And the purpose of zone till is to expand the size and depth of the root zone while preparing an effective seedbed. And the system also allowed more accurate placement of liquid or dry fertilizer in a warm, moist area of soil to promote rapid and expanded root development. Rawson pioneered a combination of three wavy coulders in a zone till system with the center or lead coulder clearing away the residue. And then two parallel coulders running behind the lead coulder provided in-row tillage to promote good soil to seed contact and help accurately place drier liquid fertilizer. We still have people using zone tillage today, but there are more people who have shifted over to strip till and no-till. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this series possible. You can find more podcasts and no-till about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today. 
So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast and get an alert whenever we release a future episode. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.